Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, they don't get any bigger than this, the Hall of Famer, an author, uh, also a, a unbelievably successful pop songwriter as well from the band The Go-Go's, Gina Shock is here. And self-proclaimed punk. We'll get that all down in a second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is from my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan. I love you, buddy. Thank you for all your hard work. Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on... Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. Tristan also runs a Instagram for the show, which is at turned out of punk. And there's a Facebook for the show turned out of punk on Facebook. And, uh, I think that, that, that is about it for, uh, for social media platforms for, for this thing. Uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all of your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that we do this podcast each and every week. You can also support this podcast by going to turnedoutapunk.com and getting a t-shirt. Uh, and thank you to everyone that ha- already has picked up one of those shirts. Very much appreciate it. And thank you to Corey for all his hard work setting that thing up for me. And uh, more stuff coming. we got a lot more stuff coming out of that soon. Uh, you can also support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk and checking some of the stuff that we do over there. There's video versions of some of the episodes of the show. There's footnotes. There's uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, preview episodes, lost episodes, things like that. So check out that. And thank you to everyone that does do that. Um, it is very much appreciated. And while I'm on the topic of thanks, this thing would not be possible without the kind support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do your thing. Just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they helped me cover the cost of this thing, which is very much appreciated because there are uh, costs with doing a free podcast. Go, go figure. Uh, so thank you to them for their support. All right. Oh, no. And I, I also play in a band. I play in a band called Fucked Up. Uh, we're going to be, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to be happening uh, in a few weeks, but... Potentially we'll be going on tour and these shows are selling out. So please go and pick up a ticket while you can um, for some of these shows because, uh, you know, I'll be able to get some people in on the guest list, but not not everyone. Oh. All right. I'm now joined by my littlest ray of sunshine, Camden. Cam, how you doing? Good. Good. Okay. Cam's going to be joining us here. So uh, I'll keep this next part brief. I also play in this band called Effed Up. We have some records that are going to be being reissued on uh, Matador Records, which the other shoe is on. It's on uh, David Comes to Life, uh, which is out now. Also, uh, Epics and Minutes, which is our first singles compilation, is going to be coming out on the incredible Get Better Records. They've also just announced they've got a tape collect uh, club uh, situation that we're going to be part of as well with a reissue of Epics and Minutes on cassette. So hopefully that thing is not sold out. By the time you hear this, if you do want that cassette, if you are a fan of cassettes, I know I've got some friends that do not like tapes. Cam, you don't care about any of these physical formats at all, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like nothing. <laughs> but anyway, uh, on to uh, today's show. Oh, yeah, we might be going on tour, too. So check out our tour dates over at uh, ffuckedup.cc. 
I know. I shouldn't swear. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You can't look at me. You said the F word. <laughs> I did say it there. I'm sorry. All right. On to, the sh- on to today's show. Today on the show from a band that both, uh, well, mo- uh, pretty much everyone in the family listens to because Lauren and I both love them very much. The Go-Go's. Uh, Gina Shock is on the show today. She has also written songs for a lot of pop stars, too, that you like. Like a lot of like um, Miley Cyrus and stuff like that, and I think she's Selena Gomez and stuff. So she's done. No, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. You don't like those artists, but you know those artists, right? You know their song. Yeah, you know their song. You, you and your brothers know their songs. They listen to pop radio a lot too. So she's written a lot of incredible pop t- songs and well, Go Go songs too. I love her, some of her Go Go songs and House of Shock. <gasps> okay, I'm sorry, Kim. I'm sorry. Keep no, him free. I'm just noise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll keep on move on. Uh, anyway, Gina is also a legit rock and roll Hall of Famer inducted this year. Congratulations to the Go Go's. Well deserved. Very, very awesome. Adds more, a little more legitimacy to that building, as far as I'm concerned. Now that they're there, and. Uh, I'm honored to have her on the show. We also had Jane on the show from the Go-Go's and Kathy from the Go-Go's on the show this year. So it's been a a real Hall of Famer year for us in the Go-Go's here at Turned Out of Punk. Gina has written an incredible new book called Made in Hollywood, All Access to the Go-Go's. With the Go-Go's? To the Go-Go's? Let me... uh, uh, Anyway, uh, if you look up Gina Shock, Go-Go's, All Access... Uh, Main Hollywood All Access with the Go-Go's is out now. This book's a monster. It weighs like three pounds, but this thing looks incredible. It's on my uh, my wish list this year for the holidays. Uh, shout out to John Worcester for throwing me a couple questions for this uh, as well because I know he's a huge fan. And that's it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the great, the Hall of Famer, Gina Shock on Turned Out a Punk. Gina, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm glad that I'm around and could could be around to talk to you. Well, as we were just talking about off air, to me, you know, you, the Go-Go's are the first punk supergroup. Like you really do have, you know, yourself coming from Baltimore, Kathy coming from Texas, members of the eyes, members yeah. of the text tones. You have like one of the first sort of comings together of people that are representing the first, first waves of punk hitting and then coming together to ultimately create one of the, one of the biggest punk bands of all time in the Go-Go's. This is, you know what? It's absolutely true. Um, we are, our roots are punk. That's what we were, a punk band. We are a punk band at heart. When we play live, I think it's very obvious. Um, we're rough around the edges and we just rock, you know. Um, we do what we do. Uh, we're not great musicians. And thank God, because uh, <laughs> that's the sound of this band. That's the, you know, I mean, that's what makes up the Go-Go's. We weren't all these, you know, child prodigies that were like, oh, we could play our instruments when we were three years old. None of that crap. You know, um, the girls, a couple, you know, Jane and... Um, um, Linda, they just started playing when when the band got together. They just picked up their instruments. And Charlotte, too, she was a piano player. She played piano and she played bass with the eyes. But um, she switched over on the guitar and it all it's all worked out. 
then Kathy, of course, had had been playing uh, had been playing guitar in many other bands, and I had been playing drums in other bands in Baltimore. But then when I came out to L.A., I was just hungry to find a band. And when I met the girls at a party, it all came together. It was like, okay, I got to come over to my friend's house. We're gonna try out some songs. They wanted to get rid of their drummer. I was looking for a gig with a band that I really felt like I fit in with. And when my friend that I was living with, Steve took me to see them when I first got to LA in 79. Um, he was like, you got to see this band, the Go-Go's. You need to get in there, kick the drummer out, and then you're going to make them really famous. <laughs> and I went to see them and they were, they were having such a blast on stage. And you know, man, I needed that desperately because I was way too serious about playing. Then we just started rehearsing a lot more. <laughs> Well, first of all, I, when I first came to L.A. was in 1978, and I came out there with a punk band, Edith Massey from John Waters Films, E and the Eggs, and that's when I met the three people that I knew in L.A., and that was my friend Rila, whose house I'm at right now, and my friend Steve Martin and Doug Martin, these two redheaded twins, these two redheaded crazy brothers, um, and they were producing... Uh, the Edie and the Egg show at the Newark Theater here in L.A. And we did like three shows in one night. And I became friends with Steve, Doug and Rila. And when I went back to Baltimore after doing that crazy tour with Edie, um, I had deci decided that I wanted to it was time to leave. You know, I was 21 going on 22. And it was this was my moment to like really either you know i had to make a decision and i felt like this was the perfect opportunity for me i knew a couple people in la i knew a couple people in san francisco and i knew a couple people in in new york city but i i i so i did actually what i did do is i i took like in six months after i got back i went to la for a little bit i went to san francisco i went up to new york got back and really decided that la um I could I could afford to live there. The cost of living was something that I could handle. Um, San Francisco was too expensive and New York was too expensive. Mm. And it was just it was too hard. Those cities were just difficult. And L.A. was just sunshine. And I don't know. It just uh, it was uh, the community was wide open. The punk community was. Uh, uh, everybody it was inclusive, you know. Mm. Um, anyway, so uh, I went home packed everything up in my dad's pickup truck and drove across country with everything. Got to my friend Steve's house. He let me set up my PA because back then you had to have your own PA when you played. So I, um, I got my PA, uh, my drums, all my vinyl, everything I owned in that pickup truck. And a friend of mine from high school, we drove across country and we got to LA. I moved right in with Steve. Babs and I moved in with Steve. And um, that's when he started taking me around to look at bands and uh, and that I, and when I got there, I put my name up in like all the record stores and music stores and my influences. I was looking to join a band. And um, and then that's when Steve said, there's this band called the Go-Go's. I want you to see them. So we went to Club 88 and I saw them play. And that's that's when I was like, this band is I want to be in this band. They are having so much fun. And they're, they're, you know, they're kind of rough. They're, they, they didn't, they weren't that great. They weren't the best musicians, but they were having a lot of fun. Mm. And I thought if I could just get in there and get them on a schedule, I know there's something there. There's something, you know, there's diamonds in the rough. There's something there that is special. And, you know, I just felt like I needed to be a part of it. So when I met them at Steve's brother's house, Doug's house, at a party he was having, uh, I, it was Belinda, Jane, and I think Margot. And um, so we set up a date and time to go to Steve's house and um, we played a couple songs and boom, that was it. They fired their drummer the next day and I quit the two bands that I was in. And that's how the Go-Go's really started in earnest.
Well, it's incredible too, because like you're all unbelievable songwriters. You know, like it's it's amazingly rare to have that with a band where everyone can write songs. Yeah, it's um, you know, uh, Jane and Charlotte, they were great right off the bat. Kathy came in and she was really good, and Belinda, you know, would put her two cents in all the time. You know, and then I I started to write as the records went on, and then I got better and better and better mm-hmm. until I you know get songs with other artists, um, which was wonderful. Uh, that took many years, but you know, it's hard to get your song covered by by Miley Cyrus or Selena Gomez. It's not easy. Uh, Anyway, the bottom line with all that is, is that the truth of this is, Damien, is if if, if it wasn't the five of us together, putting our two cents into these songs, the songs wouldn't matter. Mm -hmm. Nothing would matter. It had to be the chemistry, the five of us. What we each put into every song is what makes it what it is. It's what made them into hit songs. If there was an element missing, who knows what would have happened? I just know that you it's a 50 50 thing you you gotta have you gotta have great songs and you gotta have the right the platform to sell it you know mm-hmm. you can write songs till the day you die and if you don't have a way to sell them doesn't matter so one half needs the other i write about that in my book um you know um um and i think like i said i just think one is no good without the other and you know certainly um a band like ours the five of us are what people come to see. There's not just one of us in the band that everybody, you know, that's all they care about. You know, every uh, like everybody has their fan, their fan base in the band. You know, there's people that love just or love Kathy more or Belinda more, or Jane or me or Charlotte. It's a uh, it's it's a very cool thing. Well, that's because I think there are five beauties in this band. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely, well, and just and also five, you know, because I think, you know, not to undersell that the chemistry that you have when you're together, but all of you have done great solo stuff, you know, like house of shocks and like the, the stuff you did, those records are incredible. The stuff, the songwriting there is awesome. You know, everybody, um, I'll tell you the truth. I had no intention and never wanted to be, uh, do solo records, but that's why I found a partner. I found advanced degenerous. I don't, I, I don't like being on my own and I'm no good on my own. I got to have somebody to bounce ideas off of. I got to have that person, you know, and I found Vance and I knew we had something. We started writing and it made sense. We got along great. Our personalities were good together. And then we found the rest of the the players for the band. And we did one show. Miles Copeland was managers. We did one show at the uh, Roxy and we got a record deal on Capitol, which was pretty phenomenal, I think. Um, So everything just and everybody, everything came together for everybody. Every everybody has has their own groove, but the most important groove is the Go-Go's as far as I'm concerned. It always will be. Did you know Vance from The Cold? Like, did the Go-Go's ever play with no, The Cold? No, I didn't first know tour? The Cold. No, he was New Orleans fellow. And he yeah. came to came to L.A. and his sister was coming out here doing comedy clubs at the time. Um, and that's, that's I mean, I, don't, I forget how I met Vance, actually. I don't recall, probably through a friend of a friend, because I was really looking hard to find somebody. Um, to start a band with because I knew I couldn't be a session drummer that's just not in my DNA I you know it's not who I am um, and um, when I met him and we started hanging out I thought yeah man this is gonna work and then when we started writing it was easy it was very easy and Vance was a really good player you yeah, know yeah, yeah. and I, I love the Colts the songs that the cold had were awesome they're a really underrated power pop group I think absolutely see you know I feel like and also, you know what? I, I truly believe that at, at, at the bottom of every uh, 
at, at, at the core of every punk band, there is a pop melody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think it, it's hidden in there. You can't always see it. But if mm-hmm. you listen, like I can tell. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I look at Green Day. They have the best, best fucking pop melodies in the world, you yeah. know, and they're a punk band. Yeah. Or, or like the Go-Go's X, like uh, even the Germans. Oh, well, of course, of course, the obvious, you're stating the obvious, but, but yeah, all, all of our songs were, uh, you know, we were, we were a punk band and Richard, our producer just came in and, um, slowed everything down. That's, that's what made the difference. He wanted to, he wanted to make us appeal to a larger audience, you know? And at the time that when he did it, we, we hated it. We thought he wrecked our fucking band. We thought our <laughs> careers were over. This doesn't sound like us, but you know, when it went to number one, we we're like, oh, Richard, you're brilliant. We love you, <laughs> you know, but he, he knew the formula, man. That guy had written so many hit songs. He knew what he had to do to make us appeal to a large group of people, a larger group. I do think there's like a great punk record that could have been done between the first single and Beauty and the Beat. Like there's like a, a really cool kind of like legendary punk record that would have come out if like those demos well, from that time are incredible well you know what interestingly enough we are digging deep and when we do these shows in december mm-hmm. we're digging deep in the catalog and we're going to try to do like four or five really old songs that are and they're punk they're bam 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 you know they are oh, going to explode awesome. so we're going to we're getting when we get to rehearsal we're going to work one i think it's four or five of them um and you know we have been talking for ages about recording them because i mean it's cuz they're they're great they're fun it's who we are um that's interesting it's so funny that uh that you should say that because it, we're focusing on that right now well it's cuz it's i think it's you know not to undersell you know, this classic album, which is of course celebrated, but I think there's also like, yeah, as you're saying, there's this melody that's in punk rock and there's all these great melodic punk songs, like the screamers, like there's hooks in all this stuff, you know? And and remember the weirdos? Oh my God. They were so fabulous. That's a band that I don't understand why they were not hugely successful. That seems to be the band that people from like, you know, obviously your scene that are coming on this show seem to keep bringing up as being the band that should have, but I guess it's label. Huh? I guess it's being on shitty, like they're not shitty labels, but being on the wrong label at every turn. You know what? All I know is that timing is a crazy fucking thing, but it means everything. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to gauge, you know, when you should be doing something, you do it when it's right. It, you get it together when it's right and you show it to people, you start performing or whatever, you, whatever, however you, whatever platform you want to use to get your songs out there to get your band out there. You do it when you're ready to do it. And hopefully the timing is right, but, but you never know. Like if the go-go's had come out now, it probably would never have happened. If it would have come out, if we'd have done things a year later, who knows, Uh, but timing it's luck and timing and hard work, all those things together that, that makes something successful. I, I don't know. It's like the magic bullet. Nobody knows where it's going or where it's coming from. It's weird. Well, or just like what would have happened if, you guys hadn't put out that record because, or if you hadn't put out that record, because, you know, people talk about the Velvet Underground and how everyone who heard that first Velvet record went out and started a band. But I think the Go-Go's are the band, you know, through the Saturday Night Live appearance and just through kind of the the status that you reached gave so many people permission to play music. Like just was like, you know, go do this. I certainly hope so because our story is anyone's story. 
Mm. And, and mine and Kathy's in particular, uh, leaving our, our comfort zone, our home in another state and driving to LA to make it. <laughs> um, uh, and then, you know, working hard, our due diligence and, uh, and, and, uh, and then it absolutely happening in a major way. Um, if we could do that, it, it, I just feel like anything is possible. If you, if you really want it bad enough and you're focused and, you know, but you, you gotta be, you gotta be laser focused on something and, um, that you got to love it. You have to, it has to be something visceral, something that you, that's just coming from your insides and exploding. I mean, I mean, I still, uh, talking to you, I get all excited because I get excited about music. I love what I do. And I, I, I love this band that I'm in. And, you know, I love everything that has to do with music. When, when I was writing this book, um, I, that made me appreciate everything all the more because I was reliving, you know, every year of the Go-Go's and especially focusing, Made in Hollywood focuses mainly on the earlier from, you know, from like 79 to like 85. That's where it's mainly focused. And reliving all that just energized me in a way that I haven't felt in years and years because I've relived it all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I open that book and I look at it, I just feel like, oh my God, this is my life. You know, I cannot believe what's happened to me. And then this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, you know, the, the icing on the cake, it was like, wow, God, you know, it's been a magical journey here. I don't know. It's crazy. Well, you saw the, the I guess, famously now, Led Zeppelin and The Who, right? Oh, On yeah. That, oh, yeah. A, My a first show. show. My first show. I was 11 years old. My brother took me. He had to babysit me, so he took me. And, um, you know, being 11 years old and having that be your first show, it, well, it blew my mind. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know. All I knew when I left that, that arena that day was I got to get on that stage. Somehow I have to be on that stage one day. That's mm -hmm. cool. And you know, want to hear something crazy. I saw that first show at Meriwether post pavilion and like 12 years later, I was playing on that very same stage that that's fucking nuts. That's, that's amazing. So no, incredible. Right. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> and it's, I think Baltimore, like it's really early into it's like obviously pre-punk but like with bands like oho and that band split like george brigman i think his name is i don't know uh, like they, they they're he did a record called jungle rot in 74. like it feels like there was like a and also of course john waters there's like well, an energy you know, you know that like uh before you, you, you do you have my book you need to have my book so you can look at i want i got it I'm, i know i'm getting it from my wife for uh christmas so i oh, have not purchased it you know yet. if you have it you you're gonna die you're gonna oh god you're gonna go crazy you're gonna love it so much i can't wait um, there's a band in the book i put you know it's the genesis of my music career whatever mm -hmm. and you'll see there's a band we were Baltimore's first new wave punk band we were called scratch and sniff yes and uh we we would do four sets a night and we do two sets of originals and two sets of covers but our covers were like brian eno and roxy music and weird shit that was like wasn't the norm um and you know and the ramones uh and the violators um um you name it we were we were doing a lot and we i was especially influenced by 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 uh punk uk punk you know movement mm. was major in my in my uh education punk education uh or my music education period um so we 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 were uh 
really an interesting, great band. And we were managed by a woman named Christine Mason, who was who did all the hairdos in John Waters films. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. It's all in the family, you know. <laughs> that is amazing. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess at that time, where were, where was the first time you heard of punk? Like, when do you remember coming across the word for the first time or the genre? Um, I, I would get that magazine, Punk. Okay. Remember that magazine, Punk? Yeah, the New York I still one. have that. I still have that tucked away somewhere. Because you know what? I save everything. That's what my, another thing, babe, is what my book is about. It's everything I've been saving my entire life is in that book. All my personal shit is in the book. It's like a love letter for me to somebody like you. And, you know, anybody else that loves this band, it, it is, uh, it's very personal. Um, uh, anyway, I'm sorry. I keep going back to the book because it, it's, it, it's my life. Um, anyway, where, where, where were we? I got all fucking. Well, no, no. I, th- I think we're talking about, well, we're talking about your life, right? We're, we're talking yeah. about, you know, in, in the book, kind of the fact that you're, you're, you're showing us this sort of punk band scratch and sniff. Oh and- yeah. So, 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 um, you know, the bands that were that I was listening to were were mostly UK punk bands, as I said. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Damned, the Damned, the Violators. Um, who else? Well, of course, the Sex Pistols. Uh, 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 Buzzcocks. What have they been? Were they a little, Buzz little bit later? Oh, talk about great pop songs, Buzzcocks. Yeah. You better believe it. Yeah. So yeah, I, was was that John Waters? I guess it was like kind of that that culture loomed large over the city or over the arts community within. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John was, was the, was the king in Baltimore still is really. Um, uh, And I started hanging out downtown with that crowd, uh, his crowd kind of, and, um, and meeting Edie, the egg lady who she had a thrift store on Broadway. And when I moved out of my house at, I was 20 or 21. When I moved out, I moved into Fells Point, which was like the hip area of Baltimore, right on the waterfront. And um, Edie had her shop, Edith's shopping bag. And she'd just be sitting there every day by the cash register, her and her cat, Lovey. And you'd walk in, she'd go, oh, hello, oh, Gina, how are you? I'm going to put together a punk band. You want to be in it? I was like, yes, Edie. That's how Edie and the eggs happened. So was she going to shows or she just heard that punk was this thing that was kind of happening and, and figured she just she'd... knew from being around everybody that was in the, you know, all the hipsters were, were hanging out with John and the whole yeah. crew. They were all the hipsters, you know, from downtown yeah. and Fells Point. Um, and people, you know, all the people in, in John's films were just like friends of his. They weren't actors. Nobody was an actor. It was just mm-hmm. a crazy group of people hanging out at the time. Um, and, you know, his films are not far from the truth of the way people live in Baltimore. It's like crazy people. I would bring friends to my house in my neighborhood in Baltimore years ago. And they were like, Gina, you need to document all this. This is unbelievable. I can't believe people are fucking crazy here. And it's, I don't know if it's the water or whatever it is, but Baltimore is, uh, it's, it's a very eccentric uh, city. People are a little off. Yeah. No, I've never in, thought in the best possible way. You know, I've never thought of it till you said that, but you're right. Like the arts community that comes out of the art that comes out of there is always a, a little like left of even yeah, like yeah, the yeah. center. It's, it's like always out there. It, there's so many weird little quirks about that city, like the, the marble steps and, and everybody that everybody in Holland, we could call it Holland town, but it's Highland town. It's spelled <laughs> Highland town, but it's Holland town. And in Holland town, all the German and Polish ladies all with the marble steps and the row homes all have 
screens that are painted. They're painted like scenery, country scenery, okay. trees and grass. Like, I, that, you know, like I thought that was normal, but no, I've never seen that anyplace no. else. No, that's really weird. That, I guess it is like, it is a very colorful arts community too. Colorful is the, you know what? You just chose all capital, all capital letters when you say colorful. That is Baltimore. Yeah. And, and that's it certainly what, was the scene years ago because it was sort of unbridled. It was out of control and great. Well, like, and I think even like bands like Half Japanese or like the stuff that's coming out of there a little bit later, it's even that stuff is is a little more esoteric and a little bit weirder than the stuff that's coming. See, I'm out not familiar stuff. with with them, but uh, but I I'm sure that I would probably like like them. Oh, you dig them? <laughs> uh, they're really they're interesting. They're like I guess that's just after you leave. That's when I guess the scene sort of pops up a little bit more you know yeah, like i think you're yeah. you know which is amazing it's very similar to what kathy was like in texas where she leaves texas just before that scene kind of explodes yeah you know, like you both of you are sort of foundational in these scenes like what's that the marble bar right like that's that's the, where that's where scratch and sniff played that's where we would played and that was the hippest and it's in the book you'll mm -hmm. read about our show at the marble bar okay. um because that was like, that was the hippest place to play. And it was downtown. Uh, like bands that would come into town that were cool, like Talking Heads or Ramones, they would play at the Marble Bar. It was, in fact, the only place to play in the city there. Okay. And it had a really cool art scene. Everybody from the Institute of Art went there. And, you know, I just, that's where, that, it, was a, it was a great scene. Everybody was friends. And uh, so when we, when we were ready to play there, after we had done other shows, we, we did do our show at the Marble Bar. And the photos in the book are all taken at the Marble Bar. So for those songs that uh, was it evidence was that the name of the band with you and Edith or was it I the Egg Ladies with Edith? No, it was Edie, Edie and the Eggs. Oh, Edie and the Eggs. Okay, because it was what, were you writing the songs that would wind up on? No, the no, 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 no. I don't know who wrote those songs. All I know, she was just singing "Punks Get Off the Grass," and you know, <laughs> um, and the songs that we put together, myself and two other girls. Um, I don't can't remember anything about them because they were just not. They were just slapped together. They didn't uh, not. Not mention, not even worth mentioning. They're just not that great. Were you playing with other bands? Like when you would go and do shows, was it booked because it's like the the woman from the John Waters films, or is it like no, were you playing uh, with other punk bands? Well, I when 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 I was growing up, I would get try to get into bands, neighborhood bands and stuff. When you play like CYO dances, and mm -hmm. you know, I went to twelve years of Catholic school, um, you know, so we would play play those sort of things. Um, and I remember being in a band and it was all guys and they were, I don't even remember the name of the band. They were way older than me, but you know, they liked the fact that I was a girl and I played drums and I could keep up with the big boys kind of, um, and they would sneak me in if we were playing a bar or something, I had to come in the back way, but that was very short lived because, you know, I was constantly in search of a band that, that I really connected with. And I wasn't into a band that wanted to play covers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to do original material and the guys in scratch and sniff, they were about that. So that was a perfect fit for me. And while I was in that band, Edie and the egg, Edie came to me and offered me to, to be in the band. And I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to do that. That's my opportunity to get the hell out of Baltimore and see if I can actually make some connections like in LA and, and, and San Francisco and New York. Well, yeah, because you're when you're playing these shows, when you're touring, are you playing with like local bands in New York and San Francisco? Uh, and LA? I don't remember us playing with anybody, but I can tell you we played Max's Kansas City and CBGB's. So that can you imagine I'm coming from Baltimore? The biggest thing I've ever done is the Marble Bar. And then I get up to New York. I'm at Max's. I'm, at, I'm at, you know, I mean, CBGB's. These are places that I was only reading about in Cream Magazine or Rolling Stone, yeah. you know, or Punk. Yeah. Well, I'm, and I'm sure like. 
her coming there. I'm sure members of the Ramones were there, right? Like you're probably seeing these I, people. I have no recollection who was there, but uh, I'm probably, I'm sure because that, you know, it's I mean, scene. I know, I'm sure Debbie Harry was there. I'm sure a yeah. lot of people were there. Yeah. Um, but I have no recollection. So you mentioned, I've heard you mention before that you were thinking of moving to other cities, you know, yeah. or, and I think even now you said you're thinking about moving to other cities. What was it about like going to LA and you said the punks were more welcoming there and it felt like a much it more. It was like, uh, I just remember, and I forget who told me this recently, uh, that the scene and oh, it was Lisa Robinson. I did a com in conversation with Lisa Robinson, like that iconic rock journalist Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in New York city. I just did a book signing there at Rizzoli and we were talking and she said, talking about the, that I went to LA, you know, cause it just, it, it cost a living. I, I, I could afford it. New York was too expensive. San Francisco was too expensive, but she also brought to my attention. She said, you know, the scene in New York was like, everybody was everybody's rival. Nobody, you know, they were, everybody wanted to outdo each other. Mm -hmm. There was no camaraderie. It was like, you know, somebody's going to make it to the top of the heap and it's going to be us mentality in LA. It was nothing like that in LA everybody was supporting each other. I mean, you could go and see three shows a night and it would be a group of us, a gang of us that would go from one club to the next. And then we get more people. Then they get done playing whatever band it was, you know, the bags, whoever, the whatever it was. And then we'd run to another club and see another band. It was, it was a, it was a small group, but everybody was incredibly supportive. It was a very inclusive uh, punk scene and the mask was at the center of it all. Yeah. Where we all rehearsed, hung out, got loaded and you name it. I, I broke into that building a couple of years ago on a film production. So we could go down to the basement. Yeah. Just, it was, it's now, I think actually RuPaul's production company at the time was You're uh, right. just above it. And, and right in front, we got our, our, our star on Hollywood Boulevard directly yeah. in front of it. I think it was just Puss, before you got Puss, your star. Pussycat, Pussycat club. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we have our, we have our star right in front of, of that, of that uh, building. It's amazing because the graffiti's still there. Like they've got yeah, all the shelving in front of it. Yeah. They realized what they had, a real piece of history, mm -hmm. you know, is right in the downstairs of that building. Mm -hmm. So much, so many bands came out of there. The one that really made it first was the Motels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they were, they were the band that got like a, I think they had a, got a deal on Warner Brothers or something. And we were like, wow, the Motels got a deal. Yay. You know, we were just happy for everybody. And I guess like ultimately X get, you know, it gets signed as well. And X got, yeah, got signed to Slash Records, which is, you know, and that's another band. It's like the weirdos and X, I don't know why they weren't huge. Yeah. X should have been way bigger, should be way bigger. I mean, I know that, you know, a lot of people know John and X scene now. And, you know, that band is phenomenal. I mean, we would just, the girls in the, in the Go-Go's, we would just stand on the side of the stage with our mouths hanging open watching them play. Because it was something to see, man. The energy, the songs, everything that was going on that stage was incredible. What a band. What a band. You didn't know John at all when he was in Baltimore, did you? Before he moved well, back? Uh -uh. Interestingly enough, yeah. I mean, we would talk about, yeah, John, you're from Baltimore. And I'm like, yeah, I'm from Baltimore. It was weird. I No, I didn't know him. Yeah, he must have moved out just before. Like, it must have been like ships crossing in the night. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. We just missed each other, I think. Yeah, and I guess the Dickies would also get signed to a major label, but it's really like the Go-Go's, like you're, yourselves going in, and of course the Foo Fighters with Pat going in. It's really oh, like... Oh, yeah, well, the Germs, and and then, of course, um, the Dickies, um, Charlotte, our guitar, our guitar player in the Go-Go's, she used to go out with Leonard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so we would go to all the Dickies shows, of course. 
Yeah. Um, and that and Charlotte and him were boyfriend, boyfriend and girlfriend. And then Charlotte was another boyfriend she had was Peter Case from the Plimsolls. They the got nerves. a record deal. Yeah. And, and so, the nerves um, as well. Yeah. Like uh, I said, we were all friends. Everybody knew each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but I think it's like, it's amazing how the history of rock and roll is changed by all these people in the basement of this building in Hollywood, you know, like, I know, I know. It's just incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, black flag. There were just so many bands in and out of that place. And like I said, everyone knew each other. Uh, and this, the air of camaraderie was just prevalent. You know, it was everywhere. We were all friends and very supportive. It's almost become kind of like a refrain on this podcast that, uh, you know, this inclusive scene that you talked about coming to in L.A. changes when hardcore comes and sort of post Black Flag and post a lot of the beach scene that, uh, you know, there's a shift, you know, and it it was a little less welcoming to some people or or some people have said that. And I just was wondering what your thoughts were. Did you notice a shift at any point in the scene? You know what? I don't really know, because the truth of it is we were taken off by that time mm-hmm. and I was completely immersed in the every it was everything go-go's that's it was our, our we li- we lived we breathed go-go's that was it that's all mm-hmm. we did mm-hmm. uh we were traveling constantly or making a record but we were never in LA much I'll tell you um yes oh sorry go on. no I was gonna say you just reminded me of that band fear and and Lee Lee was so great I, we loved fear those guys were fantastic and Lee was such a, a badass so funny he was such a sweetheart to us and he looked so mean <laughs> he was really mean and, and fierce and menacing you know but he was mm-hmm. a really sweet guy oh god the alley cats what about them wow oh, they were incredible. fantastic now you're you're jogging my memory i'm thinking of all the bands oh man it's fantastic it, stuff well it's it's only like it's it's amazing when you kind of like break it down it's such an explosion of sort of youth culture you know and it's oh absolutely and it feels like it's the first time that that really kind of happens because, you know, you could put out your own tapes, you could put out your own fans and you could put out your own record. Like, it yeah, was- it was. And, you know, it, you know, sky was the limit. Any, anything you, you, you dreamed you, you could do. It was mm-hmm. weird. You just, you just had to put it in motion, mm-hmm. you know, and get a couple friends together, make it happen. It Like I said, it, it felt like anything, anything you dreamed could, could actually happen. It was weird. A weird yes. time, but a weird and wonderful time, you know? Mm-hmm. No, and it definitely, uh, people have talked about how Los Angeles, especially because you did have this huge sort of depth of studios and gear at your disposal. Oh my God, yeah. You could find music. That, you know, I'm so, I was so lucky to be, to get there when I did and how everything worked out for this band because the punk scene was thriving. The music scene in general was thriving in the, in the late seventies and the early eighties was any night of the week, you could go see a fantastic band play, mm-hmm. you know, any night of the week. And there were so many venues to go to. Mm-hmm. And and I remember hearing like in the 90s when when it start when everything when everything really changed and you had to actually pay to play in a in a in a venue. Yeah. How fucked is that? Yeah. Like if you want to do a show somewhere, you'd have to actually pay to get a slot to be able to play that night. I thought, wow, this is fucked. This is all backwards. Something's wrong here. I'm glad we happened when we did, when it was like clean and beautiful. And, you know, it was just about the music. It wasn't money, money, money. It was about people wanting to get together and support something that they loved, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, and it feels 
it feels like there's like a, a an inverse reaction in the sense that you know the scene kind of dries up like you have the glam stuff obviously that pops off but yeah like yeah a lot of people talk about how la because of the violence and because of the fact that it was pay to play yep you didn't have a lot of young bands starting and you didn't have no. a lot of that stuff downtown no 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 i don't know what came out of la you know i mean well, everything changed mm-hmm. and a thing like when rap came in this whole scene changed mm-hmm. which you know there's there's room for everybody man you know yeah I guess going back to like, you know, when it's when it's kind of popping off and exploding, you know, one thing that was happening at that time and certainly is like, you know, sort of like external violence being put on the punks, you know, like there's that famous St. Patrick's Day Massacre show yep. and the Go-Go's and X-Played. Yep. Um, and, you know, like I was just wondering what your memories of that show were and just kind of in general, like the actually I was there and I just remember Steve grabbing me by my collar and pulling me the hell out of there and said, let's get the hell out of here now. Because yeah. the cops, you know, it was out of control scene. I just yeah. got, I got pulled out of there really quickly. Steve, thank God, he he was taking care of me and watching over me. You know, I was just this new kid in town. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was experiencing all this for the first time in LA. My eyes were wide open. I was just, I could have stood there all night and watched everything. Probably get hit in the head with a fucking club or something. But I, you know, uh, I yeah, Steve pulled me out right right quick when when it all started going down. Mm-hmm. And it feels like, you know, that kind of militarizes the scene in a certain way. And like, it's, it, it's only natural that kids would eventually start, you know, like that violence would become internalized by, you know, like it's, it's natural. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. I get it. But, you know, uh, yeah, it, the cops back then, it was a little out of control, you yeah. know, uh, sort of they ruled, they could do whatever they wanted, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So you had to be really careful. Another thing that kind of sweeps sweeps LA music at a certain point is rockabilly. You know, obviously the blasters and things like that. And <laughs> the there's like blasters. That, yeah. Yeah. And there's that famous, I guess, Levi and the Rock Cats. Levi show and the Rock Cats. See, look, both of those bands, uh, like Belinda was going out with Buster in the Blasters. Jane was going out with Levi. I mean, or, or one of the guys in the band. It was always we were always going out with other people in other bands. <laughs> well, that's the thing about the Go-Go's. It's like you're never caught up in any of these sort of like fashion trends within punk. Like you're like, it's just like about the music above all else. Well, you know, yeah, but you know what? Our fashion trend was what was what whatever we could find at the thrift store. Yeah. We didn't have any money. I mean, I remember I would eat at Taco Bell every single day and I would get a taco with no meat. I just get, you know, a vegetarian, like several vegetarian tacos. I remember eating that a lot and then when i worked at a store in beverly glen um when i lived at steve's house and i I worked at a grocery store up up the street uh a guy that was the the uh butcher there he would cut cut um like good like filet mignon and t-bone steaks and shit and put them in a plastic bag with ice cubes and throw it in the trash and then after work i'd go and fish that out of the trash can and take it home and we cooked that up. I mean, I, we were poor. Yeah. We were poor, babe. We were, we didn't have money. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, any, anything was, uh, I mean, what was that fella's name? God, I wish I could remember his name. He was good to me. He was always cutting some, throwing something in that trash for me to pick out every day. <laughs> oh my God. It, I guess that also is, you know, that that's what the music's kind of bore out of too. It's like the sort of scrappiness, like, you know, it's not, it's not because you're like workshop shopping it for years, like an Emerson, Lincoln Palmer prog rock thing. It's very immediate. It has to happen now. With the it felt like it did. There was an immediate immediacy about 
Is that a word? An immediacy? An immediacy. Yeah, definitely. Immediacy yeah. is a word. It's a, it's a tongue twister, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> yeah, about what we were doing. It had to happen now, right now. Yeah. It had to happen now. And mm -hmm. the music, it felt that way. The music spoke in that way. Um, so, yeah, you're right about that. You end up going to the UK pretty early on, but you're also like weirdly, you go with Madness the first time, right? Yeah, because we had boyfriends in Madness now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, um, well, sorry, go on. Yeah, we, we we played with Madness, fell in love. I fell in love with the bass player, Mark <laughs> Bedford and Jane like Chrissy and who else? I don't know. Uh, and they went back. Cause we, this is when we were like the house band at the whiskey and the Roxy, they went back and told the specials and then the specials, we, they loved us. We loved them. So the specials and madness talked to our manager, Ginger Canzanari about bringing us over. And, um, they, they were definitely up for it. And, uh, we had to figure out how to get the money for the, for, for flights over there and have the accommodations, everything. So Ginger, God bless her. She, um, she put a car in hock. She like sold all this shit to get enough money to get us all tickets on Freddie Laker Airlines. That was the cheapest airline out there. That play, it, there, there is no more Freddie Laker. And I remember on that flight, we all sat in the back row. We were smoking and drinking. We were all fucked up. Uh, and it was just another, I mean, we're, we took the party wherever we went. Okay. The party was wherever we went. Uh, and then we got over there and we went on a tour with, with Manus and then, and then we did some shows in between, uh, in London. Then we went out with the specials or vice versa. We went out with, with both bands, like a month with one and then a month with the other. And that was great because we really were living on, we were living on two pound 50 a day and living off of like fucking Cadbury bars. And, and we didn't even have enough money to buy drugs. We used to buy cough syrup and drink. We'd have cough syrup, cough syrup parties. Well, they got and, coding in their cough syrup over there, yeah, though. And and beer. We would get that was it. That was as much as we could do. Um, we were poor. And uh so it was so great to be on tour with both of those bands because then we, we could get a meal every day. I, I I think um talking to some other people in the band, they felt like that that those tours was a little rough though, because the, the audience of those bands were attractive. oh yeah, they hated us. The, the <laughs> audience is we here we are thinking we're gonna go to England, we are gonna be embraced by the UK. They're going to love us. We're so far ahead of anything in the States. And we get over there and they hated our guts. And every night it was, you know, beer bottles whizzing by your head or Belinda would walk up stage covered in spit. I mean, they did not like us. And uh, the, the, the specials crowd was, they were, they were especially rough on us because mm. um, they were like the real hardcore um, punks. They were part of that what, the national front. They were like the white supremacists bunch yeah. of assholes and uh uh it, it was rough crowds um but but we made it through that and it toughened us up and when we came back from england we were ready for anything man we were ready to go nothing nothing could touch us after that i mean at first we'd walk off stage crying and you know whoever was in the other band would would comfort us like don't worry baby you're gonna be fine blah blah blah, blah. and after a while we'd walk out on stage we're like fuck you what do you got yeah we're ready well, that's, and that's something I, I've, I've heard and just from doing the show is that the specials like, you know, I guess like the, the weirdly like it seems so disparate, but they would attract a, a, a white power Nazi. Yeah, lady. yeah, yeah, yeah. They were they were a, a militant bunch. Yeah. That would come to the to the shows and they were there really. They were really, really there to incite violence. They just wanted to fight. That's all. 
I mean, those fucking mosh pits, there was blood, a lot of blood and a lot of, I mean, there was fights every night. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think they went there strict, more to do that than even listen to the music. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it definitely feels like that's one of the other sad parts of like punk rock is like this other, uh, you know, I guess the the flip side of that coin is that this is free place for art and people to be creative and, and embracing people. The other flip side is that it's a place with not a lot of rules. And because of that, people sometimes are drawn to it that don't have good intentions, you know? Absolutely. No, that, that certainly was the case uh, many, many nights. Um, and like I say, it's, uh, mainly the specials, they're, 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 uh, who they attracted were, was a, you know, pretty violent bunch, but we were just there to play music, you know? And you wanted to do a record on stiff, right? Yeah. We put out, uh, uh, we got the beat Dave Robinson, uh, ginger did it. We did a, a deal for a single, uh, and we put that out on stiff and of course, Nothing happened for us in the UK. Uh, we were a big flop. But in the meantime, that we got the beat import on Stiff was happening in the States in, in clubs. It seemed a lot of DJs were playing. We got the beat and it was really starting to get some heat. So we come back here and, you know, everything's happening. We are, we're exploding. We're filling clubs. We're, I mean, you know, uh, lines around the block. We do have to do two or three nights wherever we played. And then, then it moved up to theaters, you know, it it was, it was, uh, you know, it it was really starting to happen. And and we got the beat single made it. So, and then of course, uh, you know, we got the deal with IRS and then we were off and running. It feels like that we got the beat single. I love the version of two on um, we got the, beat, the single. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. And the flip side of uh, how much more? How much super, more? Oh, it's yeah. so awesome. And it, it, but it feels like that you know coming out. You know, obviously it doesn't make it in England, but like that almost is like a cred thing in America. And having it kind of like it almost serves you better that it helps build you as an underground band first. Like making you know it- what I you're you know what you're you're right. You're a hundred percent right. I agree with you, you. Absolutely. It was way fucking cooler to have to go out and buy that import, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause I know how I felt when I would go to the record store, I wanted to buy every British import. Mm. I would I would immediately run to that section of the record store and see what's new. What's in? What do you got for me? You know? Because I was so into um all British music. Did you see the Damned when they came? Were you still in Baltimore when they came for the first time? Because I know they play L.A. No, I didn't see them in Baltimore. I saw them out in L.A., I'm sure. They play, I think, super early on. They're one of the first punk bands, I think, to show up in Los God, Angeles. They right? were great. Oh, they were incredible. great. Oh, <laughs> and never got bad. Like, they never got bad. They, they All their records are good. I, um, I have a lot. I have several Damned records. I have all my vinyl, man. That's awesome. You probably have some great stuff. <laughs> I do. I have so many great albums. Um, and you know what I would do? I would bring them to different places, like when we're rehearsing, like, and get, get whoever we're rehearsing with to sign it. Like my Black Sabbath records, I got everybody to sign that. And, you know, I don't know. I would bring them that's wherever I awesome. could. Awesome. Well, I know, but I think, that was, I think that's what makes your new book so special is because, you know, you're experiencing all these amazing things and achieving all these amazing, amazing things, but as a music fan. So you know you- what? And I'm still a huge music fan. I am so excited whenever I meet anybody. And the funny thing is, is like, I, it's like now the Go-Go's really are in that group of iconic. Uh, oh, absolutely. Acts. Yeah. And it's weird because I feel like who is that 
imposter. Who is that person in the band? Meaning me, I can't get over our status and like where we are. And, and this journey has just been, feels like a big dream. Uh, you know, it's like, I, cause whenever I'm talking to anybody or meeting them, I'm like, I'm like a, an excited, like I'll always be that kid from Dundalk. Always, <laughs> always, always, always. That'll never go away. Well, uh, John Worcester, uh, one of my favorite drummers and, and friend of the show hit me up. And, and when I told him that you were coming on the show and wanted me to ask, is it true that you were at one point were going to join the replacements? No. Okay. That's Not what we true. had heard. I follow him. I, I follow him on Instagram on IG. A hilarious person. Very, yeah. very funny. And another person who loves rock, rock and roll, like as a, as a nerd for it. And like, the, I mean that in the best way possible, but like, yes, of course. I love that. Yeah. Being a nerd sexy. Yeah, exactly. Is like who wouldn't want to be a nerd? Like who how could you not be passionate about this stuff and obsessed with this stuff? You know, I don't know. I, I I'm the same way about it except I I uh uh except I've always felt like I was very cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well you are. You're you're a go-go. Like you know, you set the bar. Well, I think that's the thing is like you talked about you know, uh, you know how you guys had to thrift, you know, because you're 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 poor. Like that's your reality is thrifting to get clothes and how that yeah. But because you did that, that made it cool. So the next generation of kids didn't feel bad about having to thrift. It was cool that you thrifted. That's, you know, what's funny is like uh, Martha Quinn does a, um, has a little essay she wrote in my book. Mm -hmm. And I've been talking to her lately. And she was like, you know, Gina, when I saw the way you guys dressed, she said, I went out to a thrift store and bought stuff mm. so I could dress like you guys. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, if you want to dress like the go just go to a thrift store. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, and I think that that's you know because a lot of the stuff we're talking about prior to that, like glam, and even the stuff that's happening during punk, like rockabilly, like it requires, and even punk requires a lot of investment up front that like not a lot of people had money to do. So to see a band that's going out and just buying stuff on the cheap and styling it that way and making it cool, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we were we were we were definitely self-styled. It was just, you know, we'd all help each other get outfits and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just remember Jane, Jane and I going on Saturdays, going to the thrift store every Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. When it gets to LA, that's where that really comes in. Like that sort of like punk can be anything you want it to be because yeah, it's very fashion. And New York, even that New York stuff's very fashion early on. Absolutely. You know, when I came to LA, I, I, I just came out as a musician. I didn't care where I fit in. Well, I, I was gravitated toward the punk scene because that really appealed to me. And the first thing I did when I got, when I got the band is they shaved my head off and dyed my hair black. Boy, <laughs> did I need a makeover. I came out and had a fucking Afro, um, uh, you know, I, I I hadn't picked figured out. I had a weird little style of my own, but they definitely helped me get it together. Jane yeah, especially. She was like, uh, she's mine. I will take care of this one. Let me take care of this one. <laughs> well, you have that you have that colorful Baltimore vibe and they needed to flare, a colorful flair from a Baltimore. A colorful flair from Baltimore. And they yeah, need to, yeah. to rein that in a little bit to the LA. Absolutely. Cool. Now um, that I think of it, I should have kept the fro. That would have been really fucking cracked. Bring it back now. Why not? <laughs> uh, Gina, this has been amazing. And anytime you want to come back on here and talk about any of this stuff, please know the door is always open. Oh my God, this has been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Gina, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Gina will be back for a part two at some point in the future. Because, oh my gosh, that was awesome. That's that's why we do this thing. Hey, Cam, how great was that? 
Cam didn't actually hear the episode right now. I'm throwing him off. Okay. I'm sorry, Cam. I don't mean to interrupt. He's somehow downloaded Roblox onto my phone. No, this was already on. Oh, it was already on? Yeah, you remember that time when we played together? Oh, it's from when we played together. Okay. Well, I'm going to go get him off screens because there's already been a lot of screens today. Uh, And uh, that's it for uh, the show this week. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Next week on the show, this is a fun one, from the band The Asexuals. From the band The Doughboys, from uh, just uh, just a legend, a legend. Like the asexuals are so underrated, and they're going to be having records reissued coming up. So hopefully that will shed light on the influence of this band. Because when you hear that first asexuals record, oh my gosh, it is mind blowing how much it kind of set the groundwork for. Uh, anyway, I, I'm, I shouldn't ramble at this point, but John Kastner is going to be on this show. This is a a super fun conversation with a guy who yeah once again in the Joe boys they were in a lot of places at a at a lot of very interesting and key times and it's a, a very good conversation i'm very excited for you to hear it very good conversation that sounds so weird all right that's it remember as always black lives matter the lives of indigenous peoples matter we need to protect trans kids we need to help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people and and just stop all this stuff because These things that we're talking about here, these are people's fundamental rights and freedoms. You know, this isn't political. This is beyond political. Political is important, but this is, this is beyond political. So get involved in groups and organizations that are doing things that affect change, positive change in the world or things that you believe in and lend your support financially, lend your body if there's safe demonstrations and protests and, and things you feel safe for yourself to be involved with. And, and, you know, like just get involved, get involved because that's the best way to try and change the world. Uh, also uh, this podcast as always supports people's, uh, reproductive choices and rights to choose what they want to do with the reproductive systems um, and, uh, systems, <laughs> sounds very weird uh let's uh let's go out there and try and make this world a little bit better because we can do it i know we can positive thinking right now right positive positivity uh sign your organ donor cards because by the time they look for those organs you don't need them anymore and they could change someone's life like uncle bill right cam uncle bill got a new heart they gave him a heart transplant yeah Yeah. and it, it changed his life and so sign your or, sign your organ donor cards, you know. Uh, you can listen to this podcast. If you go back and listen to episodes, you listen to me talking about how people should sign their organ donor cards before he had his heart transplant. Now here we are a few years removed from it, and it's just wild that I'm able to say that now from a place of like do this because it really does change people's lives. Um, and they, people don't need those or- organs when they're when they're come for them. Uh, Go there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this stuff, Cam. You can start a band. You could DJ. You could create YouTube videos. You know, anyone can do this stuff, Cam. Make a podcast like Daddy does. It takes a lot of time, though. Does the podcast take a lot of time for Daddy to do? Yeah. I know. They, they get very, very frustrated with this. And go to the washroom. And I go to the washroom. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that's it. Uh, I think that's it. 
Uh, get your vaccine. Cam got his vaccine. Hey, buddy? One. You got the one. The first one. The first one. And are you feeling good? You're feeling okay? No, it still hurts in my elbow, but it's not. Your elbow? Yeah. Well, that's not where the needle went. So. I know. Okay, well... The pain apparently is transferred to the elbow, but I think apart from that, I haven't heard any complaints, and there were no fevers or anything like that. Yeah, so. I was talking to Dory about it. You were? What were you talking to Dory about it? Talking to Dory about it. What were you talking to Dory about it? I'll just tell him that's all. That's all. Okay. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. See you on the next episode. Uh, John Castner. It's a good one. Bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.